You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present our program, Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Showman. Hi, this is Roy Showman, and welcome once again to Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the realization, the completion of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. First of all, I want to thank you for listening today. I was very gratified to find out by email, as well as by running into people, that uh, I have some uh, regular listeners uh, in the United Kingdom who are listening now. It's Saturday evening at about 8 o'clock, so I want to welcome you, as well as all of our listeners uh, in the United States on radio and also over the Internet. Uh, now, I... Um, today, or rather tomorrow, to be more precise, is a very special time of the year on the Jewish calendar. We're coming up once again to the Jewish High Holidays, the period that begins with Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year, and it goes on over the 10 days of repentance to Yom Kippur, the Day of, Ater- of Atonement, and then uh, continues on to Sukkot. And so this is the greatest feast time, festival time, religious holiday time of the Jewish year. And I want to spend at least the first few moments of the show talking a bit about that. Now, tomorrow at sundown begins Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, which is actually supposed to be the anniversary of the creation of the world, uh, most probably the creation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, although there is some discussion in Jewish theology about whether it is the anniversary of the first day of creation or the sixth day of creation when Adam and Eve were created. But anyway, it's the anniversary of the creation of the world, and we are coming into the Jewish year 5777. So I just uh, wanted to make a comment about that because... um, the Jewish theology, the Jewish oral tradition as it's represented in the Talmud, actually discusses when the end of the world will come. And I know that in, in some Catholic circles, there is a rather lively expectation of a significant event that um, may come soon. Uh, different uh, prophecies characterize it differently, but but I've been traveling a lot, giving talks, and everywhere I go, people talk about this prophecy or that prophecy and and that we're coming into that time. I'm not making any comment about that one way or the other, but in that context, I thought it was kind of interesting that the Talmud, the Jewish oral tradition, does talk about when the end of the world will come. And it teaches, quote, this is straight from the Talmud, the book in the Talmud known as Sanhedrin, the world is to exist 6,000 years. In the first 2,000, there was desolation. 2,000 years, the Torah flourished. And the next 2,000 years is the Messianic era. Now, uh, since this is, we're coming up onto the year 5777 on the Jewish calendar, the world was created almost 6,000 years ago, according to the Jewish calendar. It was created, obviously, 5,777 years ago. Um, I, in this uh, chronology in the Talmud, the first 2,000 years is desolation. In other words, between the creation of the world and the giving of the law. 
And then for 2,000 years, there was to be 2,000 years between the giving of the law and the coming of the Messiah. And then 2,000 years between the coming of the Messiah and the end of the world. And in fact, this chronology works out pretty well from a Christian perspective, that by the biblical counting of the years, there was about 2,000 years between the creation of the world and the uh, Abraham at the beginning of the Jewish people. And then about 2,000 years between Abraham and Jesus, about 2,000 years ago. And, of course, we're coming up on about 2,000 years after the crucifixion. So this uh, thinks I just think it's kind of interesting to consider this possibility or to look at it this way. And another thing which can't help but occur to me is the year 5777, Seven, uh, the numbers, of course, in Judaism and in Jewish theology and especially in Jewish mystical theology having a meaning. And of course, seven is the number of completion, like seven, you know, seven, uh, days in the week and so forth. So anyway, just leave that there. We're coming up onto the year 5777 on the Jewish calendar. Now, the, um, the, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, Rosh Hashanah, uh, Rosh Hashanah begins this, uh, high holiday season. Immediately following Rosh Hashanah is the 10 days of repentance, a period of penitence and, uh, fervent prayer for forgiveness that culminates in Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Um, the, uh, um, I'll, I'll just read a few words uh, describing Rosh Hashanah from a, a Jewish source. Uh, Rosh Hashanah means the head of the year. As we read in the Rosh Hashanah prayers, each year on this day, all the inhabitants of the world pass before God like a flock of sheep, and it is decreed in the heavenly court who shall live and who shall die, who shall be impoverished and who shall be enriched, who shall fall and who shall rise. It is a day of prayer, a time to ask the Almighty to grant us a year of peace, prosperity, and blessing. But it is also a joyous day when we proclaim God King of the Universe. Um, now, the Rosh Hashanah is the day when, the, um, as this passage said, the inhabitants of the world pass before God, and it's decreed who shall live and who shall die. It's written in the Book of Life. But that book isn't sealed until uh, Yom Kippur. So the period between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, those 10 days, are a period of fervent prayer to basically reverse any negative decrees so that when the book is sealed on Yom Kippur, we are sealed in the Book of Life for a good year rather than the alternative. In fact, the standard Jewish greeting uh, for Rosh Hashanah is Lashana Tovah, which means essentially it's a shortened form of the full phrase, but it means may you be inscribed and sealed for a good year. The um, Let me uh, make a little bit of a digression. Maybe it's not a digression. Let me move on, I should say, to Yom Kippur, and um, I will describe Yom Kippur, which is coming up in 10 days, by reading from a, a lecture of uh, Lawrence Feingold, Dr. Lawrence Feingold, who is another enthusiastic Jewish entrant into the Catholic Church, who's actually a professor at seminary now, 
and he wrote a marvelous series of books called The Mystery of Israel and, and the Church, which are actually a collection of lectures he gave to the Association of Hebrew Catholics. Uh, the books, by the way, are available, if you're interested, from the Miriam Press, and you can find the books and the Miriam Press by going to the website of the Association of Hebrew Catholics, which is www.hebrewcatholic.org. So let me read what Dr. Lawrence Feingold has to say about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Ten days after Rosh Hashanah, Israel celebrates the solemn Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The essential meaning of Yom Kippur concerns the imploring of God's forgiveness for sin. This was symbolized in the purifying of the sanctuary and the rite of the scapegoat. This feast is commanded in Leviticus 23, verses 27 to 29, quote, On the tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present an offering by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on this same day shall be cut off from his people. End of quote. The feast had two other important elements, the rite of the scapegoat and the solemn invocation of the sacred name of God by the high priest in the Holy of Holies behind the veil and before the Ark of the Covenant. The holy name was pronounced only on this day. The rite of a scapegoat is described in Leviticus chapter 16, quote, Then Aaron shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the door of the tent of meeting, and Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood within the veil, and do with its blood, as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel." And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them upon the head of the goat and send him away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness." The goat shall bear all their iniquities upon him to a solitary land, and he shall let the goat go in the wilderness. Close quote. It is obvious that no goat can bear the sins of the people of Israel and make expiation for them. This graphic image of the scapegoat is clearly a figure for the true sacrifice that expiates sin, the sacrifice of the suffering servant, the passion of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9 explains how the sacrifices offered solemnly on Yom Kippur are but a figure of the sacrifice of Christ, the high priest of the new and eternal covenant between God and mankind. Quote, this is now a reading from Hebrews 9. The priests go continually into the outer tent, performing their ritual duties, 
but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the errors of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary is not yet opened as long as the outer tent is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various ablutions, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance. So we see in this passage from Hebrews that the uh, sacrifice of Yom Kippur was just a picture of the true sacrifice for the redemption of sin, which would be when Christ came. Now, interestingly, the fact that Yom Kippur and the sacrifice of Yom Kippur was uh, only a precursor to the true sacrifice when Jesus came is actually given evidence by a miracle which occurred and then stopped, uh, ceased to occur, which is described in the both the Talmud and the Zohar, the Talmud being the Jewish oral tradition, which is written down, and the Zohar being the central text of mystical theology in Judaism. So I will continue reading from Dr. Larry Feingold's lecture um, on uh, on the typology of Yom Kippur, the section entitled Miracle of the Scarlet Thread on Yom Kippur. The Talmud and the Zohar relate that certain miracles occurred regularly on Yom Kippur in the time of the Second Temple. A scarlet thread over the door of the sanctuary would miraculously turn white as a sign that God had found the sin offering acceptable. This was understood in reference to Isaiah 1.18, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. This miracle, accompanied by a miraculous continuation of the burning of the western lamp, and a miracle by which a lot for the scapegoat was always drawn in the right rather than the left hand, occurred every year during the time of a holy high priest, Simon, Simeon the Upright, and only sometimes after his time. The Talmud relates, quote, Our rabbis have taught on ten eyed authority. Throughout the forty years that Simeon the righteous served as high priest, the lot would always come up in the right hand. From that time onward, sometimes it would come up in the right hand, sometimes it would come up in the left hand. And during that same span of time, the crimson thread would always turn white. From that time, sometimes it would turn white, sometimes it would not turn white. So long as Simeon the Righteous was alive, the western lamp remained permanently lit. When he died, they went and found that it had gone out. 
From that time forward, sometimes they find it extinguished and sometimes lit. The Zohar also relates this account and explains that people would rejoice when the crimson thread turned white, for they took this to indicate that their sacrifice had been accepted by God. Similarly, they would grieve when the miracle would fail to occur, taking it as a sign that their sacrifice was not accepted in heaven. The above Talmudic tractate also reports that these miracles completely ceased to occur 40 years before the de- 40 years before the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD. Quote, Our rabbis have taught on Tenite authority 40 years before the destruction of the sanctuary. The lot did not come up in the right hand, and the thread of crimson never again turned white, and the westernmost light never shone, and the doors of the courtyard opened by themselves until Rabbi Yohan ben Zakkai rebuked them. He said, Temple, temple, why will you yourself give the alarm that you are going to be destroyed? You don't have to, because I know that in the end you are destined to be destroyed. For Zechariah has already prophesied concerning you. Open your doors, Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. A similar account of the same miracle of the scarlet thread and its cessation is found in a different Talmudic tractate, Rosh Hashanah 31b. The context is a, discru- is a discussion of the same great rabbi uh, who was said to have regulated the use of the crimson thread. For it is taught, at first on the Day of Atonement, after the high priest performed his special worship, they would tie a crimson thread to the outside of the door of the temple entranceway. If it turned white, the people would rejoice. If it did not turn white, the people would be grieved. They ordained that they should tie to the inside of the door of the temple entranceway, but still the people would peek. They ordained that they should tie half of it to the rock and half of it to the goat sent to the wilderness. This tractate then questions how Rabbi Yohanan could have given this ordinance if he taught only at the time the miracle had ceased. As he considers this question, the Talmud states, and it is additionally taught on Tenai authority for 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple, the crimson thread did not turn white but rather remained red. The Talmud does not enter into speculation as to why God completely ceased to work this miracle 40 years before the destruction of the temple. It is presented simply as a sorrowful and humiliating fact and as a foreshadowing of the great tragedy of the destruction of the temple which occurred in the year 70 A.D. However, it is surely not coincidental that 40 years before the destruction of the temple is the date of the crucifixion of Christ. Both the miracle of the scarlet thread turning white and its complete cessation belong to the order of typology, events which themselves have a symbolic meaning with reference to the Paschal mystery. The cessation of the miracle is fitting, for the sacrificial offerings of the Day of Atonement could no longer be an acceptable sacrifice to God after the sacrifice of Christ was consummated on Calvary. Indeed, all the sacrificial offerings of humanity, including the solemn sacrifices of Yom Kippur, were but figures of that one true sacrifice that redeemed mankind from sin by offering to God the oblation of charity of the heart of the Incarnate Son, 
which is more pleasing to God, and all sin is displeasing. So let me interject here. Uh, Dr. Feingold is recounting the miracle of the scarlet thread, which used to always occur on Yom Kippur, the one day of the year when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Jerusalem in order to offer sacrifice for the remission of sins of the Jewish nation. A scarlet thread would be tied around the doorway, and it would miraculously turn white when the sacrifice took place as a sign that the sacrifice had been accepted by God for the remission of the sins. But the Talmud also recounts that that miracle ceased to occur and never occurred again about 40 years before the destruction of the temple, that being precisely the date of the crucifixion of Christ. And therefore, the Talmud itself confirms that the uh, sacrifice of Yom Kippur ceased being efficacious, ceased being effective at the time of the crucifixion of Christ. Now, in uh, Dr. Feingold's discussion of Yom Kippur, he goes on and points out a very interesting fact and draws some conclusions from it, which is that it seems that the confession of St. Peter, that is when Peter said, you are Christ, the Son of the living God, when he correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, that that confession took place on Yom Kippur, and that that was not coincidence, but was in itself quite a um, telling item of typology. So let me read the section from Dr. Feingold's discussion of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur and the Confession of Peter. There is an interesting connection between the holy day of Yom Kippur and the confession of Peter in Matthew chapter 16. In Jesus of Nazareth, Pope Benedict XVI endorses the suggestion made by some exegetes that the confession of Peter was made on the feast of Yom Kippur, which occurs on the 10th of Tishri, five days before the feast of Sukkot. Matthew tells us that the transfiguration of Jesus which we have connected with the Feast of Sukkot, occurred six days after the confession of Peter. Thus, according to the Semitic reckoning of time, the confession would have occurred on the Day of Atonement, that is, on Yom Kippur itself. This is deeply fitting, for Yom Kippur was the one time of the year in which the sacred name of God, the Tetragamaton, Y-H-W-H, that is, pronounced Yahweh, was pronounced by the high priest in the temple. In Matthew 16, verses 13 to 15, Jesus asked the disciples who people say that he is, and he then asks them who they say that he is. Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter has solemnly confessed the new name by which God has revealed himself to mankind. The name of God is holy because it indicates the sacred reality that God is. By referring to Jesus as the Son of the living God, Peter has confessed his faith in the sacred mystery of the Trinity and the Incarnation. God is not a solitary, but is Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and the Son has become man in Jesus of Nazareth. This confession of Peter has the same sacred import as the solemn confession of the sacred name of God in the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. And it is pronounced by Peter, 
who will be ordained high priest of the new covenant during the Last Supper. Interestingly, Christ then proclaims his faith in Peter, giving him a new name, Cephas, or the Rock, on whom he will build his church. And he gives to Peter the power to forgive the iniquities of the new Israel. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This promise thus fulfills what was prefigured in the sacrifices of Yom Kippur. So let me just um, underline some things in here. What Dr. Feingold is asserting is, first of all, after um, basically repeating what Pope Benedict XVI wrote in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, the day on which St. Peter uh, confessed the uh, confessed who Jesus was, you are um, the Christ, the Son of the living God, happened to fall on Yom Kippur. They were one and the same day. And this is significant for at least two different reasons. One is that was the only day of the year on which the unpronounceably holy name of God in the Old Testament, the yud Hey vav Hey, the Y-H-W-H name, known as the Tetragrammaton, would be pronounced by the high priest. It's the one and only day of the year when the high priest would pronounce the most holy name of God. So it is rather fitting that the high priest of the new covenant, that is St. Peter, the first pope, should on that very day first pronounce the new holy name of God, that is Christ, the son of the living God, should identify him and pronounce his holy name on the very same day. Also, the Yom Kippur was the one day of the year when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice for the remission of sins of the Jewish nation. And Peter, as the high priest, um, and as a matter of fact, as a representative of, of all priesthood, was given the same power in the new covenant to um, remit the sins of man, that is, when Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So how fitting it is that this um, confession of Peter, the identification of who Jesus was, should have been made on Yom Kippur, and the giving of the power to remit sins associated with that, uh, with, with him as the new high priest. Now, we have come to about the halfway point in the show, and so we usually take a short musical break about halfway through. And when we come back, I will continue with a little more discussion of um, the Jewish holiday season that we're in and Yom Kippur and its place also in another way on the Catholic calendar. And uh, so that's the plan for when I come back. With that, let's go to our musical break. Be back in a few moments. Every time I try, I fail. Every time I stand, I fall. Everything I've had, I've lost. Be my everything. Wanting to be first, I'm Wanting to run fast I 
listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now return to our program, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Showman. Hi, welcome back to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. And I will uh, go on with the discussion of Yom Kippur and the Jewish High Holidays in relationship to their fulfillment with uh, Jesus, the true High Priest. Um, but, um, again, if anyone wishes to call in, the number here is 866-333-6279. Now, the point I'm kind of uh, trying to make in this part of the show is that um, there's a way in which, of course, I'm, I mean, we know that the uh, fulfillment, the, the transition from Judaism to the Catholic Church and the sacraments in its most fundamental way took place at the Last Supper, which was at the same time a Passover Seder and the first Catholic Mass, and of course was also the inauguration of the Passion and Death of Christ. But I'm trying to paint a picture here where in another way one can see a central fulcrum, a, a pivot point in the transition between Judaism and the Catholic Church in Yom Kippur, uh, with uh, Yom Kippur as the uh, holiest day of the Jewish year, the most solemn uh, uh, holy day of the Jewish year, and also the day for the remission of sins, the one day for the remission of sins of the Jewish people. And of course, we know that the true remission of sins was only made possible by the sacrifice of Christ. So there is, kind of theologically, there is a uh, equivalent, so to speak, between Yom Kippur and the sacrifice of Christ, and it's kind of that equivalence that I want to kind of flesh out a little bit, or at least, at least give a little bit of a feeling for. I apologize for uh, some vagueness, but that might be for two reasons. One is the entire underlying concept is extremely deep and mysterious, and the other is uh, mea culpa. Simply, um, the the thoughts are just coalescing in my in the process of coalescing in my mind. So they're not as uh, clear as perhaps they will one day be. But let me go back and read the passage from Matthew 15 that I was alluding to before the break, where St. Peter professes that Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. So let me just read uh, verses 13 to 20 from Matthew 
16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So the point I was making or trying to make before the break is that it's no coincidence that this exchange between Jesus and St. Peter took place on Yom Kippur, according to Pope Benedict XVI and many biblical exegetes. So why is it no coincidence? What is the typological meaning that this profession of faith of Peter took place on Yom Kippur? It's twofold. One is Yom Kippur was the one day of the year when the most holy name of God in the Old Testament, the the YHWH name of God, would be pronounced. And so it's fitting that that's the day on which Jesus's divinity is first pronounced, since he is really the the fulfillment of that and most holy name of God. And the other reason is because Yom Kippur was the day for the remission of sins. And so it's fitting that it's the day on which Jesus told Peter that essentially from now on, it would be through the priesthood that sins would be remitted rather than through obviously the Yom Kippur sacrifice. And so it was on Yom Kippur that Jesus said to Peter, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So it was no longer a matter of the this uh, sacrifice in the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. It was no longer a matter of the scapegoat being loosed on Yom Kippur for the remission of sins, but it was a matter of Peter and after him the priesthood of the church binding and loosing on earth um, and in heaven sins. So I just wanted to repeat that. Now, in this echoing between the the um, events in Christian salvation history, in other words, in, in the fulfillment of salvation history, and events on the Jewish liturgical calendar, there is another uh, kind of echo, there's another resonance that I want to mention in the last section of the show, which, uh, bear with me a moment, you'll see where I'm going. Uh, in the uh, Before the revision of the calendar, of the liturgical Catholic calendar after Vatican II, there were... Uh, some what was known as Ember Days celebrated four times each year. They would mark the end of the seasons, the changing of the seasons, and also the liturgical cycles of the church. There were spring Ember Days after the first Sunday of Lent. There were summer Ember Days after Pentecost. And there were fall Ember Days after the third Sunday in September. And then there were winter Ember Days after the middle of December. So I want to talk about the fall Ember Days, which we just had 
last week. Now, they are not broadly celebrated now in the new calendar, although they can actually be still celebrated, but they were universally celebrated in the old calendar. And what's very interesting is that those fall ember days coming near the end of September uh, would always come around the time of the Jewish high holidays, which fall around late September or early October usually. And the readings in the Catholic um, liturgical readings for the masses said on those ember days were actually about the Jewish high holidays. They were very resonant with the Jewish high holidays, which were about to occur. So the ember day readings, which were the readings from last week, if anyone followed the Ember Days in the liturgy, were actually also reflecting this this um, mirror image between Judaism and the Catholic Church, or this prefigurement of the Catholic Church within Judaism is probably a better way to put it. So let me read some of the readings from the uh, Autumn Ember Days, in other words, from those um, uh, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday of last week, which would have been read and how and I'm going to read them in the light of how deeply resonant they are with the Jewish high holidays, which would always fall around the same time. So, uh, first of all, uh, a reading from Amos, which is, is just full of beauty, uh, kind of repeating the, the God's love for the Jewish people. Let me just read it. It starts with Amos uh, chapter 9, verse 13. Again, these are the Ember Day readings from the Catholic liturgical calendar for late September. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them upon their land, and they shall never again be plucked up out of land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. And this is clearly a beautiful picture of of the promise that God made to the Jewish people, which is realized in the Messiah, this overflowing uh, luxury and richness and wealth and... and um, you know, such that the mountains drip sweet wine and that basically before you have a chance to plant the seed, you shall be reaping the uh, harvest. And before you um, uh, sow the seeds of the grapes, you'll be treading the, the grapes for wine, That, which is, of course, what happened with Jesus, is that everything which required... Um, effort and sacrifice and um, a tremendous, uh, I don't know how to put it, straining to pull forth these graces from heaven before the new uh, covenant, in, under the new covenant, you know, it's just uh, gushing forth, um, as, as uh, it says in one of the Psalms, honey from the rock, you know, rather than having to strive to get a trickle of water from the rock, it's gushing torrents of honey from the rock, which were brought to us with the Messiah, with Jesus. And then another uh, Amber Day reading, which is um, Roy? very... Yes? Uh, we've got a caller on the line, Andrew from the UK. 
Oh, oh great, but it didn't show up on Skype. I typed it in oh, while he's yes, on the there line. It is. Never mind. Please. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Andrew, thanks for calling. Hi, Roy. Yeah. Um, I, 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 was, I was called in be discussing exactly what I mentioned in the, in the email, which is fantastic. Um, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I, I, you know, I missed the six, first six minutes of the show, by the way. It was a, had a dodgy internet connection. But, um, yeah, you're discussing the, you know, the, the, um, the, um, uh, the miracle of the scarlet thread and so forth. Um, I just had a question, which I, I was, I've been wondering for a while, as regards to the, uh, the blood sacrifice, the sacrifice made by the priests in the Holy of Holies, be, um, you know, up until uh, 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion. Um, what, what exactly was, was um, you know, obviously you, you see it, uh, uh, it's, it's a preparation for the, the ultimate sacrifice, which Christ himself made. But I'm, I'm wondering in, in terms of the, the, the actual nature of the sacrifice which was made, the blood sacrifice which was made before uh, the ultimate sacrifice, um, was that seen in, in purely in terms of a, of a preparation, or was there some sort of sacred value to the, the blood, blood sacrifice itself? Um, I don't know whether I'm putting that across uh, no, clearly think, enough, but I you, you get what I'm saying? It, it, was there a, is there a sort of a, an innate value of, of, of the, the sacrifice itself? Because throughout the Old Testament, there's, there's, there's the, the issue of um, the, the meaning of uh, or, or the, the importance of blood. Um, as I've you know, been picking up on from in the accounts of, of many Jewish people who've converted, uh, well, not converted, become, become Catholic. Um, so I'm just wondering if you could explain that, that you know, the, the actual uh, the value of, of the sacrifice itself. Well, let me first of all ask ask you, so I'm just sure that I understand the question correctly. Uh, it's yeah. uh, if I understood correctly, what you're asking is, did the blood sacrifice in the days of the temple actually have any uh, efficaciousness? Did it actually yeah. work for the remission of sins? Yeah, that that is what yeah. I'm asking. Yeah, and I, I I think it's hard to escape the idea that it did work for the remission of sins um, and of course the miracle of the scarlet thread would suggest that it did because the miracle didn't occur when God did not accept the sacrifice for the remission of sins um, mm. I think that the entire system of blood sacrifice for the remission of sins was in itself just basically a picture of its fulfillment in Jesus but God nonetheless did respond to it in a kind of sacramental way and did um, not automatically, which is shown by the fact that the thread didn't always turn white even before the crucifixion, but that God would yeah, sure. um, apply it for the remission of sins. Um, okay, and would that, that's, that's what I was... For the remission of sins. Uh, you raise actually another really interesting point, which I never thought of and which I don't know the answer to, which was, mm -hmm. was even that only efficacious in anticipation of Jesus' sacrifice, if you see what I mean. It was Jesus' sacrifice which gave the earlier blood sacrifices the power to remit sins. That's an interesting question too, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I was, I was sort of trying to decide whether it was the state of the people's hearts on uh, Yom Kippur, which um, was determined whether God was pleased with the sacrifice or not, or whether there was some innate value in, in the blood itself, you know? 
So, yeah, that's 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 answered my question. It's, uh, yeah. um, you know, now that you're discussing something, some of the things which I'm, you know, been on my mind of, uh, of late, I thought I'd, uh, you know, call in and ask you that. And uh, I, I listen every week, not necessarily live, but it's a fantastic show and uh, doing a fantastic job. Well, and, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks for listening from halfway around the world. Um, and for letting me know and, and, you know, for your, um, engagement and calling. Sure. Thanks the, very much, Roy. Sure. Um, okay. So let me just go back, I guess, though, to the stream, uh, that I was on about the Amber days, uh, because I'll very quickly get to, get to Hebrews 9 again because that's one of the Ember Day readings. And Hebrew 9 is, of course, I, I apologize because I read it early in the show, but it's actually the scriptural description of the transition between the blood sacrifice in the Old Testament and the fulfillment of the typology in Jesus. So um, so I'll just, I'll just actually um, go to that now uh, because it ties in so well with the call. Again, uh, I did read this before, but I'm reading in a little bit of a different light now. So the author of Hebrews is is explicitly comparing the um, the Yom Kippur sacrifice in the days of the temple, in other words, in the old covenant, with Christianity and with the fulfillment in Jesus. So reading from the beginning of Hebrews 9, now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly sanctuary. For a tent was prepared, the outer one, in which the lampstand and table and bread of presence was. It was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain stood a tent called the Holy of Holies, with a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered in gold, a golden urn holding the manna and iron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go continually into the outer tent, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the errors of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary is not yet opened, as long as the outer tent is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various ablutions, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of Reformation. So what the author of the Hebrews, is, uh, letter to the Hebrews is saying, is that the uh, Holy of Holies itself and the outer um, in the outer tabernacle and the inner tabernacle in the temple in Jerusalem was just a picture of the true the the true realization of it which would come with Christ which would be basically the holy of holies with within ourselves actually and that the uh, fact that the outer uh, the outer uh, tabernacle was um uh were, I'll stop there 
um, and that the um, sacrifice of the high priest could not deal with cleansing the conscience of man, but could only deal with the sins associated with violations of the commandments of the law having to do with food and drink and ablutions. You remember all those laws in the New Testament that are referred to in the New Testament from the Old Testament about what you're allowed to eat, what you're not allowed to eat, how you have to wash your hands, and so forth. So what the author of the letter to the Hebrews is saying is that the sacrifice of the high priest could take care of those um, legalistic sins, let's say, but could not cleanse the conscience of the worshiper, which may in fact be a partial response to our caller's question about the efficacy of um, the blood sacrifices. It's kind of interesting, right? The, because the, um, the, the sacrifice itself was kind of materialistic in a sense, uh, very material, the pouring out of the blood. And the sins that it could remit then were fairly material sins having to do with eating and drinking and so forth. When the true spiritual sacrifice took place, then the spiritual sins could be taken care of uh, by that. Um, uh, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and, bo goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred which redeems them from the transgressions under the first covenant." I can't really add to this. It's a very beautiful description of the um, cosmic amplification, so to speak, of the of the um, cleansing under the new covenant as opposed to the uh, cleansing under the old covenant. Um, and, of course, that it's the eternal covenant and Christ made the sacrifice once and for all, whereas uh, under the old covenant the um, sacrifice had to be repeated every year. Um, I will, uh, um, I guess I'll skip down to uh, verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into a sanctuary made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So I will close there, but I just wanted to read some of these readings from the Ember Days because I think it is really, really beautiful that the church calendar itself makes use of the, um, of the timing of the, the Catholic church calendar with the Jewish calendar 
makes use of that timing to introduce readings that make explicit the transformation of the old covenant into the new covenant and makes use of those readings at a precisely the time of the Jewish liturgical year, which is Yom Kippur, to introduce readings that explicitly discuss the transformation of Yom Kippur under the old covenant into the sacrifice of Christ under the new covenant. So since this show celebrates the um uh, as I say at the beginning of the show, the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church or the fulfillment and completion of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments and its liturgy, I thought this was a good opportunity to kind of present this illustration of exactly that. So we've come to the end of our time for today. I want to thank you for listening and uh, invite you to join us again next week on Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. Bye for now.